the covenant that God made with Noah. And we spoke about the significance of the covenant sign which God provided in the sky in the form of a rainbow. And tonight we therefore reach um, verse 17 of chapter 9. And tonight I want to try to cover um, the oracle that Noah made regarding his children um, and also the dispersion of the, of the nations which you read of in chapter 10 and also um, cover the building of the Tower of Babel and God's judgment upon uh, Babel and upon that tower. So hopefully we'll get through that this evening. First of all then, let us turn to Genesis chapter 9 and picking up from Verse 18. <clears throat> and the sons of Noah that went forth of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham is the father of Canaan. These are the three sons of Noah, and of them was the whole earth overspread. And Noah began to be a husband. And he planted a vineyard, and he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was uncovered within his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, and told his two brethren without. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, and laid it upon both of their shoulders, and went backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward, and they saw not their father's nakedness. And Noah awoke from his wine, and knew what his younger son had done unto him. And he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And Noah lived after the flood 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were, born, were sons born after the flood. The sons of Japheth, Gomer and Magog and Madal and Javan, Tubal and Meshach and Tiraz, and the sons of Gomer, Askenaz and Repath and Tobamah, and the sons of Javan, Elisha and Tarshish, Kittim and Dodanim. By these were the isles of the Gentiles divided in their lands, every one after his tongue, after their families in their nations. And the sons of Ham, Cush, and Mizraim, and Phut, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush, Seba, and Havilah, and Salta, and Ra'ama, and Saptasha, 
and the sons of Rama, Sheba and Dedan. And Cush begat Nimrod. He began to be a mighty one in the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Wherefore it is said, even as Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, Erech, and Akkad, and Kalmeh in the land of Shinar. Out of that land went forth Ashur, and builded Nineveh, and the city Rehoboth, and Kala. And Rezen between Nineveh and Kala, the same is a great city. And Mizraim begat Ludim and Anemim, and Lahabim, and Naphtahim, and Pathusim, and Kasluhim, out of whom came Philistim and Kaphtun. And Canaan begat Sidon his firstborn and Heth, and the Jebusite, and the Amorite, and the Gergesite, and the Hivite, and the Archite, and the Simonite, and the Arvidite, and the Zemarite, and the Hamathite. And afterwards were the families of the Canaanites spread abroad. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon, as thou comest to Gerar, unto Gaza, as thou goest unto Sodom, and Gomorrah, and Adma, and Zeboim, even unto Lasha. These are the sons of Ham, after their families, after their tongues, in their countries, and in their nations. Unto Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the brother of Japheth, the elder, even to him were children born, the children of Shem, Elam, and Ashur, and Arphaxad, and Lud, and Aram, and the children of Aram, Uz, and Hul, and Gether, and Mash, and Arphaxad begat Salah, and Salah begat Eber. And unto Eber were born two sons, the name of one was Pelek, for in his days was the other <coughs> and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begat Almadad, and Shalaf, and Hazamapveth. And Jiru. And Hadoram, and Uzal, and Dikra, and Obal, and Abi, Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havila, and Jobab. All these were the sons of Jogdan. And their dwelling was from Misha, as thou goest unto Sephar, a mount of the east. These are the sons of Shem after their families, after their tongues and their lands, after their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, after their generations and their nations. And by these were the nations of the nations divided in the earth after the flood. And just a few verses in chapter 11. And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinon, and they dwelt there. And they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for water. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, and let us make us a name lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. 
And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language. And this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. So first of all, let's look at um, chapter 9, verses 20 to 27, if you could just cast your eye on this, to save me having to read it again. And here we have Noah's oracle. Um, and the first thing that struck me about this, um, looking at it again, was how similar this um, oracle is to the prophecy that we have read many times in Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, which is the first gospel. And the Lord, as God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, thou wast cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. And it seems that both at the beginning of the first world, and at the beginning of this new world, the world that now is, there is this, um, that they both have this shaping, formative prophecy right at the beginning, which seems like, like an index at the beginning of a book, that sets out how the future is going to uh, unfold. They seem to give the, <coughs> they give shape, they, they almost mould or shape the future of redemptive history until the Messiah comes. But with, with Genesis 3, 14 and 15, of course, it, it's very high level. It jumps right from the fall to the coming of Messiah. The, the, there will, the seed of the woman will deal a death blow to the seed of the serpent. So it jumps right through to the Lord Jesus Christ and his coming. Whereas in the oracle of Noah, there's more detail given. Um, it gives shape to redemption, but it's more detailed. Noah's or oracle renews or underlines the curse and the promises of victory for God's people. Um, it presents victory over the dragon and his forces, but it focuses on how this spiritual warfare will play out in the forthcoming 
Abrahamic covenant. So it doesn't jump straight to the Lord Jesus. It focuses on the next major step, which is the coming of Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. It focuses or centers on the role of Israel and its role in the plan of redemption in the era leading up to the coming of the Messiah. We all know, if we've read the Bible even once, that as we go on, most of the Old Testament relates to Israel and how God makes Israel prominent in his plan of redemption up until the coming of the Messiah. In the prophecy in Genesis 3.15, God foretells the spiritual opposition between the children of God and the children of the devil. And in this oracle, there is a trigger for Noah's curse. It was the same spiritual opposition that we see among Noah's sons as we see between uh, Satan and Adam and Eve in the garden. Because we read of Ham's terrible behaviour. Um, Ham clearly showed himself to be of the seed of the serpent. You see, in the fall of man, Satan brought Adam and Eve into shameful nakedness. And Ham behaves just like the devil when he aggravates a situation where he found his father laying without any clothes on under the influence of drink upon his bed in his tent. And instead of dealing with a situation um, in, a, in a decent way, he brings attention to his father's nakedness. Um, it may be, there may be more to it than we're told. It may be he's making a joke out of it or trying to humiliate his father. Certainly it was very disrespectful behaviour. But at heart it was the same maliciousness that was in the heart of Satan that was in the heart of Ham. And in great contrast, Shem and Japheth display the attitude that God showed in the garden. They showed the love of God by covering Noah's nakedness. Like God did with Adam and Eve, he covered their nakedness. And they clearly showed by that action that they were of the seed of the woman. They were of the covenant seed. Satan and Ham were malicious and exposed the nakedness of man. And it was that action which prompted the oracle in Genesis 9, verses 25 to 27. And in both uh, cases, the one in 3.15 and here in chapter 9, God puts a curse on the seed of the serpent and a blessing upon the seed of the woman. And we need to view this um, oracle in a, as a spiritual curse and as a spiritual blessing. Um, 
We need to see this as part of the covenant of grace. We should not interpret this in a racial way, as many have done. Um, and there we get into the dangerous territory where some Christians have taught that um, Arabs, for example, are uh, almost written off by God, that they're under the curse of Pan. It's not meant, that is not what this is saying. I'll, I'll explain a bit more about that in a moment. But this is a spiritual judgment and a spiritual blessing, which we'll go on to see. Um, so first of all, we read of the curse of God on Canaan. Notice not Ham, but Canaan, one of his, what will be his very remote descendant, not even somebody who was just around the corner. Canaan was in the far horizon of, uh, of one of the lines of his descent. And the curse was on Canaan. And the curse involves a spiritual exclusion from the kingdom of God. It says, a servant of servants shall he be unto his brethren. And this expresses the um, rejection of Canaan in contrast to the election of his brothers. And that's very similar language, isn't it, to that used in the contrast between Esau and Jacob. The language that the Apostle Paul uses in Romans 9 says it was said unto her, The elder shall serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. So this language of being a servant, of being in servitude, is um, symbolic of this curse. You see, um, it is a motif for reprobation rather than election as Esau was hated by God Jacob was loved by God Jacob was chosen by God Esau was not and the elder shall serve the younger so this subjection or subservience of Canaan um, to his brothers mirrors the hatred of the elder brother to the younger the elect, and the electing love of the younger God puts enmity between Satan and the woman between her seed and his seed and we see this hatred played out between Canaan and his brothers particularly not so much with Japheth because for a while they disappear from the scene but between Shem and Canaan, when we get to the story of Israel and the promised land, we see the hatred between um, them. In many respects, that hatred is still there today. Mm. So, the, as I say, the question could be raised: Why, why instead of Ham, who was the one committed the sin, uh, was Canaan his? son in the far future the one who was cursed each of these curses and blessings have a specific historical outworking whether it be the curse or the blessing and in fact 
in all three, the cases of all three sons of Noah, either in terms of the two blessings or the curse on Canaan, they all relate to a remote descendant of one of their lines. So let's start with Canaan. When did that curse come into effect? Um, well, it came into effect, didn't it, when uh, Israel entered the Promised Land and drove out the Canaanites. Um, the curse didn't apply to all the descendants of, of, of Ham. He had many other lines of families which we never hear of. But the Canaanites were the ones that were cursed. Not all the Semites and the Japhethites, uh, those are the Gentiles, not all, not all the Japhethites uh, came into blessing. Um, and as we, as we will go on to see. So let me put it this way. If you had a DNA test, which is quite possible these days, and you found you had Canaanite DNA in your genes, um, it doesn't mean that you're subject to this curse. Um, what it means is that in each case, in each of these children, some branch in the genealogical line in question experienced a prominent and notable experience of either curse or blessing. I'll explain what I mean. So in terms of the curse on Canaan, that that notable experience related to God's subjugation of the Canaanites under the Israelites at the time of their entry into the promised land. That's when that curse came into effect. Nehemiah speaks of this in, in chapter 9, 24. It says, So the children went in and possessed the land, and thou subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. So it's in that event that the curse on Canaan took effect. The warfare between Israel and Canaan was a redemptive action on the part of God. The conquered Canaanites are to be seen as, in terms of redemptive typology as the representatives of the serpent seed. That they were crushed under the heel of the seed of the woman and the act of judgment within the promised land. And this is why we get these um, very horrific stories of, of whole populations being destroyed, even down to the babies being killed, the children and the animals. Now, when Israel conquered nations or fought nations outside of the perimeter of the promised land, you will notice a very big difference. They didn't kill the children. They didn't um, kill the woman very often. They uh, would um, conduct a war in which they would take spoil 
and they wouldn't utterly destroy those nations. They would win the war, but they would leave the nations intact. But within the parameter of the promised land, what happened? They utterly destroyed what they were supposed to. They didn't always do it, of course. They were told to utterly destroy every animal, every child, every woman, every man had to be obliterated. Why? Because of the typology, the typological redemptive act of judgment that God was trying to display that within the promised land, this was God's land in which no evil, no sin could remain. Where the seed of the serpent had to be crushed. And that's how to understand those terrible stories of um, nations being destroyed. You see, Canaan was under a curse. And that was when the curse was implemented. During the Canaanite, um, the expulsion of the Canaanites from the promised land. And so we do need to avoid um, these extreme racial interpretation of these verses which um, have led to many problems. We see Christians today saying that the Palestinians are under the curse of God because they are they are the most modern version uh, or descendants of the Canaanites. Palestinians can become Christians just the same as you and I. They are not under this curse. That curse has happened. The Canaanites uh, suffered in a specific period of time for a specific typological purpose. Um, we do need to be careful how we interpret the Bible. Um, terrible situations of Africa and apartheid was not helped by the teaching and theology of the Dutch Reformed Church. I mean, that was exaggerated, I think, to some degree. But they certainly didn't help matters by a very um, uh, false understanding of some of these verses in Genesis. We have to understand the topology, or, or we can cause havoc in the Bible. We can wipe people off, we can be racist. Do all sorts of things which are not there if we understand how it's put together. That's part of the reason for this series that we can understand how to handle the Bible and not to misuse it generally cause havoc in life. So that was the um, curse on Canaan. Then there was the blessing on Shem, from whom we know. Um, Israel descended. The blessing on Shem is in the form of a doxology. A doxology. Uh, in verse 26, it says, "Well, this is not. This is the, from the Hebrew. It says, Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem. Blessed be Yahweh, the God of Shem.' So the Lord enters into a covenant relationship by using His covenant name, Yahweh." With Shem. Now Shem means name. Shem, that's the, 
the word, etymology of the word means. Shem is a name. And God emphasizes his name, Yahweh. So Shem takes on, is identified with the name of God. And they are adopted uh, as God's children. That he becomes, he says, the God of Shem. And Noah's blessing on Shem, again, um, emerged uh, in, in the future, uh, in the period, um, well really from Shem to Terah, uh, the father of Abraham, who later became Abraham. We're going to go on to see, speak about that perhaps next time as we introduce Abraham. Um, so the Shem-Terah line leading up to Abraham was the covenant line climaxing in the call of Abraham who was the descendant of Shem through Eber. Eber is the root of the word Hebrew, the Hebrews. Um, and so the focus of the blessing on Shem in verse 26 is on the pre-Messianic stage of the Abrahamic covenant when the Semites in the form of the Israelites were prominent in God's plan of redemption. God for, um, uses Israel as his main tool, tool, his main method about working his plan of redemption. Paul talks about this in Romans 9, 4. He says, who, who are the Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises. So there was a great blessing on Shem and Israel um, was God's main uh, instrument of unfolding his plan of redemption. So I'm going to all these papers tonight because I folded them too much. Their blessing, Shem's blessing in history, um, was um, was the other side, as it were, the far side of um, of the future. But it was also for Canaan, for the, for the Canaan. It was almost like flipping a, a coin. And our heads were Israel was blessed, and tails. Canaan was cursed because the curse and the blessing were linked. As Israel was blessed and possessed more and more land, conquered more and more nations, so Canaan was cursed as they were defeated and driven, in, driven out. Which is why um, in the Abrahamic covenant, God said that those who blessed, that he would bless those who blessed Abraham and curse those who cursed him. And that's how you to understand that. God was fighting for Israel. He was conquering for Israel. Those who blessed God's work, he will always bless. And then we come to the blessing on Japheth um, in verse 27 of chapter 9. Just read it. God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, 
and Canaan shall be his servant. servant. This is interesting because um, Japheth, um, the descendants of Japheth were the Gentiles. The nations spread all across the world, in what is now Europe, and all the, all the countries which we never hear of, or very rarely hear of, in the Bible. Um, but they had a blessing too. Those islands that far away from Israel, China, and all these other places, which we never hear of in the Bible, they were subject to a blessing also. Um, and in the blessing on Japheth, the focus um, of, the, of Noah's oracle is on the far side of the Mosaic Covenant, it's beyond the um, concentration upon Israel, and it forwards right to the Messianic age when Jesus comes, and the universal great commission of the church is given. So, you see, entrance into the covenant for eons of time was almost entirely limited to the line of Shem. It wasn't totally, but almost exclusively the elect people of God were limited to the line of Shem. But this prophecy promises the descendants of Japheth that they would be included in the covenant. And isn't it an amazing thing that even before we get to Paul's epistle where he, he's amazed at the mystery hidden for ages that, that the, the Jews and the Gentiles would come together into one covenant. The mystery hidden for ages, that was his whole theme. That all the way back here, God is already saying that there would come a day when the Gentile and the Jew would be would be one, that they would be reconciled, that there would be one covenant. 